I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor for TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he thinks that Wyatt guy's got some good points. It's Andy Greenwald! Yo, this is like old school podcasting. I am in a freezing hovel in New York City yes. on a phone. And uh, I can only imagine you're on a beach with a mocktail somewhere. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a tiki bar meets uh, point break. It's really just something else here right now. Andy, uh, welcome to the podcast, the world's fourth or fifth best Casey Affleck podcast, at least. Uh, today we'll be talking about uh, last night's episode of Westworld. Andy and I also wanted to talk about Manchester by the Sea, the new film from Kenneth Lonergan that opened on Friday in, in certain theaters. We will not be spoiling uh, spoiling that film, really, but we will be talking about our, our love for it, uh, and we will wrap things up with talking a little bit of music. But first, Andy, let's get to, um, let's get to Westworld. Let's get to the timelines, baby. Yeah, so I guess the consensus seems to be, and I say this, you know, I'm just I'm just a guy soaking up culture. I'm just walking the streets again. You know, I'm really like getting back in touch with people, <laughs> yeah. the common man, yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. the hot nut, the hot nut vendor on the street corner. You know what I mean? Like the guy who aggressively elbows you as you try to walk down to the six train. Can I ask you and, a um, quick sidebar question? Sure. Ever have you ever actually enjoyed a bag of like hot roasted? Um, you know, I don't want to. I'm not trying to make the joke, but hot, hot roasted nuts. You're not trying to ask me if I've ever enjoyed hot nuts on the street. No, you don't I just want to go mean. There. I mean, I mean it because it's like one of the things in my life where it's like the smell to actual taste mm-hmm. divide is so huge that it it's still one of my like it, it's it's one of the, the lasting uh, visceral memories of of my of my time in New York City. Yeah, no, I never, never order them. Never eat them. Yeah. Definitely not. But it's 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 always nice to get a, a, a hot blast of that, especially when your other options are um, fresh urine or um, garbage. <laughs> you know, so it, it's very nice for that re- yeah. in that regard. But yeah, yeah. my my point being that the hot nut vendor, Chris, as well as all the other colorful characters that make up this great city of Gotham, uh, all of them seem to communicate to me through their sullen body language that this was an episode that featured a kind of an info dump. I think people <laughs> like the takeaway of information because it did seem to be, quote-unquote, answering things. Uh-huh. But I have a, I have a <laughs> much like I, I like hot nuts and I have a big butt here, okay, <laughs> because it, it, that, that sort of commentary to me strikes at the heart, the problematic heart of Westworld, which is, once again, it is delivering things in a functional manner without really much art to it. I found this, I mean, this isn't going to be a surprise to people who listen to this podcast. It may be frustrating. I thought this was a pretty lousy hour of television, although some of the revelations it gave were probably, I, I will give you, were kind of interesting. But just in terms of the construction of the hour and the artless way that it was delivered, it was disappointing to me. But I, before I get into that kind of nitpicking, I want to hear what you thought. Um, I think that what I... I, I I think it's important sometimes to distinguish that it, it's not necessarily that I, I don't agree with you that it's artless because I, I think that it has there is some artistry involved or that they know what they are doing. I think what they are doing might happen to be the exact thing that you are completely uninterested in in television, which is almost a uh, and, it, and, it, and it's ironic or per, and, and perhaps in, it, it, 
on purpose, it is ironic, that a show about robots is post-human. It doesn't really have any relationship to real, like, uh, human emotions. I mean, everything in right. this show is a construct. Everything in this show is a story. That was what some people talked about. Characters repeatedly talked about being stuck in a story, writing their own story, how our, our emotional reactions to things are, are simply just written in. Pain is controlled by the brain. It's not real. Everything about it is sort of moved on past you know the 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 typical things that we go to narratives for which is sort of to find some kind of resonance in our own emotional experiences and our own biographical kind of experiences with the world um and i don't know necessarily that you're you're obviously not watching this show and you're like ah it's like john barth or robert Coover. it's postmodern i mean you obviously think this is a bag of bullshit and I don't blame you because I think that it's not being necessarily posited as this construct or this commentary on popular culture or the myths that we tell each other. Um, but this is a sort of macro way of saying, I get what you're saying. I, I, I feel like every episode of this show right now is this tightrope walk of just basically not making any sense and then having the internet explain it to me the next day. And when the internet explains it to me, I'm like, no. Nah. That makes a lot of sense. But during the episode, I'm just like, what is happening? What is Tessa Thompson doing? Look, the one thing you and I and everyone else on Earth can agree on is what is Tessa Thompson doing? I think that is a that that is our safe point. That is our lifeline. Um, I, I, I'm going to agree with one major thing you said, which is that they know they, they're, they, they're smart and they know what they're doing. I agree with that. You don't have a character, in this case, uh, Tessa Thompson, Say to another character, don't, isn't that what you, show don't tell, isn't that what you writers say? And then have an episode that just viciously violates that to the degree that this week's episode did. You can't have that without some self-knowledge or at least some awareness of what you're doing. The example I want to use is the Man in Black's big exposition speech, um, which was, I believe you coined the phrase, a total bag of bullshit. Um, in that in that it was, to me, the worst kind of dramatic writing, because the, a character who has been silent up to now invents a backstory for us and then takes it away as if that is going to be some sort of currency equivalent of emotional connection. What I mean is, he says, I had a wife, by the way, and I had a family, and I did these things, and now I don't. And basically, what television or you know film entertainment usually do is they give us a sense of the things that were taken away, and we're going to talk about Manchester by the Sea in a second, which I promise will be the only time we compare these two. Things. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. Um, but he so Ed Harris creates it and then takes it away, which is completely pointless in terms of making us feel anything. It's really just a narrative download, but, you know, or an upload as the, as the, as the, you know, as the QA people often give us. Now, what I fear is going to happen is that the show is actually trying to once again outsmart us and be too clever for my observation. And we will find out later that we actually do know the wife in question because, uh, because of the time issues that I'm sure we're going to get to. Either we know her or when we, re when it's revealed that he is Jimmy Simpson, then we've at least seen him when he was excited to be married and then we realized what's happened to him so the emotional resonance comes later to that i say you know bravo you you are very clever you have one debate club this year max fisher but that is not make for a particularly entertaining tv show for me right while you're watching so the fact that 
that the exact scenario that you're talking about, which is that this this character puts forward the chess piece of here's my backstory, here's why you should care about me, and then topples that he the man in black topples that backstory over. Does it it all change your feeling about it? And I already know the answer to this, but uh, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you. Um, does it all change your feeling about that? That that is literally something that. Four did for Teddy and Bernard, where he gave them quasi-tragic backstories to enrich their character and give them motivation. I mean, isn't all of this basically about the fallacy of the storytelling that we so often champion? I, I think that you are making accurate and correct observations. I just think that the, if the sh- I, I think that if the show really just wants to plant its flag not in the sort of emotional storytelling that generally attracts audiences, um, but instead like hovering 10 feet above it, stroking its chin and musing. I think that's a very, very weird place to set a show and ultimately not a very fulfilling one. Now the ratings are high, people are enjoying the mysteries and the puzzle, so I, you know, it's very possible that, that I don't know what I'm talking about. But you know, I, I'm starting to feel about the show the way I felt in the late 90s when people would tell me why Tortoise and Juno 44 were really good <laughs> because they were post because they were post rock and they knew about like you yeah know, but no but like not eight, no eight, like six, not nowhere near the amount of people years. listened to Tortoise and Juno 44 or watching this I mean obviously I understand I, what you're saying but I, I, I totally agree so that's, that's why I may I may be totally wrong about this but you know the, I, it's tough for me to get exercise about something that I meant only to admire in that way, you right. know. I, I, I don't want to. I want, but I, it's important to, to 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 basically put a parenthesis around my criticism because they 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 definitely are aware of what they're doing. I think you know all the the whispers we've heard about you know uh, reshoots or you know pr- troubled production. You can see those aspects if you look them if you look for them maybe in other ways when some of the scenes are a little baggy or some weird fades between stuff. But in terms of the big picture stuff that they're trying to make a point about about writers and characters and narratives and, and what we relate to and why we're all just kind of saps for wanting that backstory anyway. Sure, fine. But I, I, I but if you want also want to be a weekly television show that I enjoy, then you're not you're not hitting the mark. Uh the to to sort of spin things forward here, I, I thought I would mention that um do you want it, you want my report from, from Theory Island? I want your report from Sylvester uh, Sylvester Archipelago. Can I, I can I ask you a question? Do you, so I yeah. one of the things that is almost charming about this show is that no character seems to know what any other character on the show is doing, almost in a way that would make sense in real mm-hmm. life. So my experience of this moment right now is completely different than yours, and I'm behaving in a different way. You, you and I wouldn't make sure that tonally we are experiencing this or rep, rep, representing this moment in the right way to like. In, in real life, we wouldn't like coordinate our like outfits and our and our state of minds and like how fast we were talking or how we were feeling, and that's definitely the case for Westworld because <laughs> so, like how did Sylvester get past HR to get this job? You know what I mean? Like like everybody here seems like I'm wearing a sweater and I know what I'm doing, but then there are like these two yahoos, Sylvester 
and uh, what's whatever the British writer guy is. What's his name? Lee. Uh, he just yeah. like like how do those guys get past the second interview like without swearing and urinating all over each other? And then like I was really impressed with HBO's commitment to slicing people's jugulars though. That's really been a core <laughs> part of their programming this year. Shout out to Michael K. Williams on the night of. But but. Isn't it kind of exciting to know that while many aspects of society may crumble and certain moral standards that we like to hold ourselves to in this era may not survive into the 29th century, at least the one-time guaranteed fatality of splitting someone's jugular on television can now be fixed with some sort of future stapler suction gun. Yeah, that's dope. Future stapler. That's pretty cool. If Future Stapler wants to sponsor the watch, uh, I'm happy to uh, use it on Andy at at any given moment just as as like a a (laughs) kind of branded content video. Yeah. Speaking of HR, do you think they had some like powdered sugar donuts for Sylvester to just get his energy back up after losing <laughs> basically all of his arterial? Blood? Where did those guys get the cool overcoats? Is that that stuff's just hanging like in a Max and Mara that they have there? I, I, I don't want to harp on this. I just mean that like if you're making the show as arch and meta as as you are arguing that they are, and it's very possible that they are. Could, could they just throw those of us, you know, who just want to live in Sweetwater a, a bone here and, like, just think about the characters you're writing? Just take, just take, a, take five minutes out of your day for those tech characters and just make them make sense on some level. Because it's just instead of, like, wide-eyed bird whisper and raging <laughs> asshole, like, it just, it just fundamentally doesn't make sense, yeah. you know? It's just one is way too broad, one is the opposite of broad. And and they just spend they just spend their days on set with naked Tandy Newton. Now there are worse ways to spend your days on set, but it's just super weird to me. It, it, it's as disconcerting as many of the other details in the show. So but now, just please talking, send me a telegram from Theory Island. Yeah, just talking about things going forward. And if you don't want speculation to ruin your enjoyment of the show, which I think is totally understandable, I would just hit the fifteen second button a few times here. We'll wrap it up after this. Yes, um, yes because because my enjoyment of the show has been paramount in this conversation so far. <laughs> I just want to shout out Joanna Robinson's write-ups about this on Vanity Fair. They're very good. Rob Harville also had a very hilarious and and smart, more on the Andy side of uh, looking at the show uh, on The Ringer. But Joanna does a really nice job of, like, kind of just laying, like, the theories that get talked about in her own theories over the show and uses, like, really handy gifts to just kind of illustrate what she's talking about. So now the big thing is, uh, drumroll, that Dolores is Wyatt. Whoa! <laughs> wow! Was that forced? Did you mean that? Wow! I mean, that's just that'll that'll do your head in, you know. I mean, that's that's some heavy stuff. <laughs> I, I I don't. Um, okay, Ron Burgundy. To, no, I'm just trying to find the 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 vocal emoji I can use to express how little I would care about that. Like, but you know what I mean? Like that's that that's just. What would that even mean? You know what I like, Well, I think just, that what they just... try to do is like what's what I think what this fits into is the larger part about the show which is the if if Jimmy Simpson is starts out as a white hat and winds up as a black hat and as a black hat still thinks that he's the good guy and we're right. perceiving Ford as this uh, controlling vengeful God but at the same time like may have also done things in the past to control 
his experiments, which got out of hand, which is what I, I, I'm, I don't know. I think that there was an idea that Dolores was going to be this, um, like Christ figure that led this this revolution of the robots that that were trying to, right. and now it looks like maybe she is is more of a pagan kind of like you know leader of of, of an uprising. Can I can I ask you a side question? Hmm. What's up with What's up with Ford? Like <laughs> Hopkins is great. His his ability to know everything and do stuff. Yeah, super cool. He's got a great phone. Oh, but what does he want? What are his motivations other than protecting the intellectual property built into his massive robots and playing God? What does he actually want? Oh, like, is like he working towards something? Like, when does he get to retire? Like, what, yeah. like I mean, he's. Why yeah, would just, you need something else if you controlled your own world? But what motivates him? Is it purely protecting the world? Because his, I can't tell if it's even that. Andy, he had a mean Scottish dad. <laughs> well, that does. Fiction has taught us that that can really lead to a lot of things. seriously, but yeah. All right, I'll take that. I'll take that for now. Okay. Um, I, I, I mean, before we even talk about Dolores being Wyatt, should we just go go through some of the timeline stuff? Yeah, there's basically because the the, the, the three versions I, of of uh, I think her name is is it Armistice or what's what's the woman who showed up now the host for William when he first arrives on the train and now their new Clementine but also the 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 double agent for Wyatt so we have now seen um, the same actress play uh, three different characters or three different hosts it's the woman who meets uh, William when he first arrives in the train there's a woman in the dance sequence in the original version of the town that we are shown where like the hosts are learning how to waltz with each other and then it's the same right. actress playing the uh the woman who is uh supposedly rescued from Wyatt but turns out to lead them back to Wyatt or or get them um get them caught by her and it's I, th- I believe like her character's uh named Angela in one of those ca- characters it's she's played by Tallulah Riley who is uh Elon Musk's ex did, you know, little damn, damn. Um, that would suggest that there are three timelines being shown. That there is a sort of pre-park timeline that's about thirty-five years. There is man. And, there's William's arrival at the park and his first trip through the park, which is thirty years ago. Then that is something that is the last time that they had some problems with the hosts, which is thirty years ago. Thirty years later, I don't know how many times he's been to the park since then. The man in black shows up to get to the center of the maze and bring down and 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 end the game basically. And uh, at some point in there, there's a lot of speculation that there is a war in the park between Arnold and and Ford. Um, and then there's obviously a lot of speculation about who Bernard could be uh, based on. Some people think it's Arnold. Um, so that's it. That there are three timelines basically. Right, and we and we can sort of assume or extrapolate that all the above ground business. With Bernard and Teresa, that's all concurrent with Ed Harris's Man in Black stuff because when Ford interrupts the scene with Ed Harris and um, and Lawrence, uh, or uh, Teddy, yeah, he he is old. He is his current age. Yes. So, and then even I, even even doubting, <laughs> skeptical, hot nut guy over here could figure out the timeline stuff because of the church steeple, which the camera lovingly yes, lingered which is, on. And it's at various steeple. stages of being raised and buried, yeah. Right, and now it's being dug up again Excavated. for the new right. storyline. Right. right. Um, which seems to be bringing Wyatt, Wyatt 
back. I think Wyatt was there before, and now they're bringing him back. That was my other question. I okay, think, well, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> but we don't know. So what? Just tell me before we move on, because you know, obviously, we have two episodes left in the season. We are going to learn more things. The show is, for all its faults, that I love to talk about. It doesn't seem shy about giving us the answers to them. It does. I don't think they're going to be coy about the timeline stuff, Ned Harris stuff past the season. Um, what are you currently, pure positive part of your brain, excited about going forward? What does Maeve find out about the world when she gets outside the door? Because you think she, she thinks she's going to make it out. So that's where she's going. I think that she will get to the precipice, but I think she might not like what she sees when she gets out there. Right. And then I, th- I guess the, the, the other side of that is, is the Dolores character um, basically an angel of mercy or an angel of death like what is her sort of role in this why is she glitching out in a specific way why does she she seems to be existing in multiple timelines she has at least two people who are dedicated like in a way three characters but two characters but three actors who are all sort of dedicated to finding her whether it's man in black william or teddy um and we still haven't seen I don't think we've really seen there's a there's a there's an actor or a character in that first massacre that we see that Dolores keeps putting the gun to her head during um, that I think is implied that that was Wyatt. But there's a lot of theory out there right now that that Dolores is actually the Wyatt character that she goes mad and like leads and that Arnold kind of drives her crazy and that she starts this weird group of, of, of outcasts on, in the hills. So I kind of I want to see what happens to that. Also, just like, you know, what what like what what dope Bon Mott does Tessa Thompson have next to fire at at, at people? Can I, can I ask you a question, or am I am I going am I too far ahead of things here? But is it possible that Tessa Thompson is at Harris's daughter? Um. That so you she's think that the daughter that he's talking about? That, but you think that Ted, that Ed Harris would be in the dark as to why Tessa Thompson finds him odious if she was also the executive director of Delos? I guess that that well, maybe she that could make sense. Maybe she only recently, maybe she only recently became the executive director when he basically gave it up when his wife died to just go play cowboy for the rest of his life. Sure. Did, I mean, did I just there, have a theory? there's also like the like is Tessa Thompson somehow like related to the to the Maeve character? I I, don't, I have no idea. Like like there's the, the Tessa Thompson character seems so specific, but I don't understand what you like. I don't understand what she's doing that Teresa couldn't have done. Do you know what I mean? I, <laughs> well, and I'll it, just stop you there. I don't under, I don't understand a lot of things, but I look forward to finding them out. Right. Okay. I, I can't wait either. Let's talk about Manchester by the Sea, but first, let's take a quick break from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is the smart speaker system that streams all your favorite music, radio, or podcasts to any room or every room. I am all in on Sonos and have three rooms with their speaker system in my house. One person can be in the kitchen listening to NBR, uh, another person listening to rap in the bedroom, all while I'm immersed in classical music as I work from my home office. There's a simple addition, too, that makes all the difference. They have a play pause button right on the speaker. Unlike other products that have tried to bring wire 
wireless sound into the real world, you don't have to pull out your phone, open an app, sort through a menu just to pause what you're listening to. You can just walk right up to the speaker and push a button. It's amazing. This simple app brings together all your favorite music services, radio or podcasts, and lets you control everything from songs to volume to rooms. You can even play the same song in every room, which is really good for parties. How could you even have a party without Sonos? Seriously, how? Add your existing music service to or discover something new. Go to Sonos.com right now. Hey guys, just want to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors, Original Grain. There are a lot of watch brands out there, and to be honest, they all look typical to me. I need a watch that's going to make an impact, and that's why I'm hooked on Original Grain watches. These are the first watches I've ever seen that combine handcrafted exotic hardwood inlays with stainless steel accents. Every Original Grain watch has been uniquely crafted, and no two watches are the same. Original Grain was born in the towering forests of the Pacific Northwest. With endless inspiration from the outdoors, their founders continue to design stunningly crafted watches made from wood and steel. Original Grain's signature dials and links feature wood selections from across the globe, from African rosewood to reclaimed American oak whiskey barrels. Every Original Grain watch has a unique story. And by partnering with Trees for the Future, for every watch you purchase, Original Grain will plant 10 new trees. How awesome is that? You guys have to see what I am talking about, so go to originalgrain.com slash the watch right now, and they'll give you 15% off your entire purchase. That's originalgrain.com slash the watch for 15% off your entire purchase. Purchase. I don't understand. Well, I can't be his guardian. I, I assumed Joe had discussed all this with you. He didn't. Okay, Andy, uh, we want to talk about this new movie, Manchester by the Sea. It's the new film from Kenneth Lonergan, director of You Can Count on Me and Margaret, and the writer of such hits as uh, Analyze This. You know, like a classic of American uh, American cinema, but uh, in all seriousness, this is um, this is a weird movie to talk about because it's uh, got element. It's obviously it did really well per theater, but it's not out everywhere yet, and it is definitely something that I would say that it would be better to go into it knowing as little as possible. So I I would hope that we could just talk a little bit about it artistically and not so much specific plot points. The broad strokes are basically Casey Affleck plays a janitor living in Boston um, who seems pretty down and out about life. Um, and he is called back to uh, a town uh, up north from from where he is, I think, uh, on the water. You know, is, that, is it supposed to be the Cape or is it just like the, the sort of North Shore? I mean, you, you you spend more time up there than I did. I think it's just it's just north of Boston, right? Yeah, and so it's about an hour north the town of Boston, of Manchester by the sea. Yeah, so and it's it's a it's a uh, seaside town uh, where he is called back to a family emergency, and he is forced to sort of unpack some stuff that has happened to him in his life that led him to the sort of dark place he's at. He is asked to take care of his uh, nephew, played by Lucas Hedges, who you might remember from some Wes Anderson movies recently. Um, and that's that's about that's about the no, Chris. Yeah, listeners of the watch will remember Lucas Hedges from his bravura turn on the television program The Slap. Oh shit! That's right. The the photographer you, kid. You were probably wondering why you felt so you're drawn to him. Hedges Hive. That's right. That's right. That's incredible. That show was a murderer's row of talent, and we're only just beginning to see it flower. Uh, But 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 go on, yeah. So he he plays he plays Casey Affleck's nephew. Yeah, and um, look, I think that what I would say is that 
when you hear people bemoan um, the lack of filmmaking for like like films for adults or films that grapple with just human emotion and and films that paint like a complex portrait of life, um, the the. The problem is, is sometimes that when you do get things like that, whether it's something in prestige television or a movie, it, they, they don't always live up to like the the thing that you think. I mean, it's like we often be like, oh, what happened to the the sort of middle brow thriller from the '90s? And sometimes when you get middle brow thrillers that feel like they're from the '90s, they're actually not that good. Um, this is like a towering achievement, man. Like this is I I don't even know a lot of the the the, the story of this this movie almost inoculates it from criticism i think in some ways because it's like how do you even get get into something like that but that would betray the fact or that would that would mislead people into thinking that it wasn't like an incredibly funny movie and an, and an incredibly warm film ultimately yeah i think that it it's an exceptional film i think i am extremely grateful that i saw it in a movie theater because i don't know if i could have sat through it on my own couch because while it is incredibly entertaining and incredibly funny at times, it is also emotionally excruciating um, in ways that I struggled with, honestly. And uh, was you know, it can be difficult to watch, but it is ultimately it earns everything that it it tries to do. Um, I think that uh, you know you're talking about this in the tradition of. You know, sort of the the middle movie, the the, the adult movie. Yeah, the five and easy pieces. One of the reasons movie. why, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I know what you mean, and, and one of the reasons why I'm glad we're talking about this and encouraging people to see it. I hope in kind of vague terms is because, for as much as we bemoan the lack of a certain type of of movie aimed at adults without superheroes in it, even before those movies were completely squeezed out of the multiplex there definitely was already a tendency for those movies to basically become their log line so that the movies would be, oh, that's the devastating drug addiction story. Or that's the movie about the haunted guy who um, loses his wife or whatever the case may be. Sure. And even before we see those movies, I mean, do you remember a couple of years ago there was a movie called Things We Lost in the Fire? Yes. Like Benicio Del Toro. And I, I remember that movie being the talk of the trades before it came out because it was just apparently wrenching and brutal, but wrenching and brutal aren't really, don't, those don't make a movie. Those don't make an entertaining movie. And the reception of that movie proved it. The reason why I'm really glad we're talking about Manchester by the sea in this vague way without spoiling anything um, is because I don't want people to think this is some sort of trauma movie or event movie. This is a movie that creates these people, um, you know, 360-degree human beings and lets them be people and then also puts them through the a kind of ringer that I can't even believe. The thing about Kenneth Lonergan as a writer that just blows my mind is that, you know, that he wrote Analyze This, I had no idea. No, uh, he, he's also a playwright, but he, he, his tendency seems to be to go, you know, when people scream fire and they run from the fire, his tendency seems to be, oh, that fire looks interesting and warm. I think I'll walk right into it. And that is scary and impressive as a writer. And the fact that he comes out of it un, mostly unburned is even more remarkable. Yeah, he has an ability to look at trauma and grief and and regret and failure um, with the kind of focus that somebody like Aaron Sorkin would look at expertise or um, 
mm-hmm. you know, like like that kind of, or or Tony Gilroy would look at um, the inner workings of a of a company. You know, like the the Lonergan doesn't flinch from any of it, and because he's not flinching, he gets to see things like the funny moment before this tragic moment, and the funny moment is so important. And I don't mean funny like what a gag. I mean just like people being people because you never know when something's coming. Really, you know. Right, like the Lucas Hedges character, um, who has who has suffered a major loss, also really wants to get laid because he's a teenage boy. And one doesn't necessarily cancel out the other; one just complicates the other. And the movie never loses sight of that, and is often very funny about it. Um, before we get into the performances, which we need to talk about, I just want to say, more than anything else, this movie made me feel one thing, which is that I really wish I was Matt Damon's friend. Seriously, because Matt, Damon Matt Damon does some favors. Matt Damon is a good friend, and not just because he stood by Ben Affleck during Gigli, but because this dude is friends with Kenneth Lonergan. He supports; he's his personal friend, but he's also obviously a huge fan of his writing and his art. And you know, we talked on the pod years ago when it finally came out about Lonergan's second film, which I think is pronounced Margaret, but I don't want to call it that. That's wild! Um, what a world! But I know, but that's a movie that he was working on for, I think, five years. He eventually had the movie taken away from him, and he got it back to edit it, and he kept running out of money. It was going to be this three-hour masterpiece, and it really was a worthwhile movie. But, you know, Damon was one of his friends. I think Matthew Broderick is another who just sort of kept giving him loans and saying, make the movie, make the movie, and then basically got this movie set up for him to get him out of this catastrophic existential funk he was in because of the you know the process of making the last movie yeah and then the part so he gave him the money for it the executive produced it and then he also said though the last straw was though that he damon would get final cut because so it wouldn't happen again yeah this is a good friend well and like if i was ever bottomed out i would give matt damon the car keys and it's not just lonergan that he helped out so damon was like i was gonna play the casey affleck role and then it was going to get held up for two years because of The Martian and Jason Bourne. So he was like, I guess I won't, you know, I don't want to hold this up and make it go into another existential limbo. So I'm only going to give this part up to Casey Affleck, though. So Casey Affleck gets this friggin' role of a lifetime dumped in his lap. And let's say Casey Affleck is a really good actor. And this is, this is, this is a career-defining performance. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of times where, um, you know, I, I think like if you look back at performances where people are obviously grappling with the ability to like, they are incapable of articulating what is going on inside of them. This is a movie where someone has to articulate the fact that nothing is going on inside of them. And that is an incredibly, I, I, I know that sounds cryptic, but that is an incredibly difficult thing to imagine is to say I've been through things and now there's nothing there I've been like I've been washed out and he is confronted with it over and over and over again in this movie and you every time you think he's gonna do the goodwill hunting scene and say it's not your fault it's not your fault you know he doesn't and it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing to watch him have to do that because I'm sure as a person and as an actor the thing you need you're building towards is this cathartic moment and um, he he really does give some some kind of remarkable performance in this movie but I think there's a scene in particular that you're mentioning that you're referring to we won't or at least um, you know you're, you're sort of talking around it and we won't get into it but Michelle Williams plays an important part in the movie and there's a scene when these two characters finally run into each other once again and it's I, I can't think of a, a, a two better performances on the screen 
period, than the two of them in the scene, which is mostly awkward stuttering and one character talking and one character trying to get out of it. Yes. It is just yes. absolutely mind-melting and explosive. Yeah, it's like nobody, at this, there's no two characters ever want to have the same conversation at the same time. There's always one character in this movie that's trying to get out of having to have the hard talk. Um, or even just, a, you know, one person might be like, let's bond. And the other person's just like, I don't want to bond. I want to find my car. One person might be like, uh, let's have like a familial connection. The other person might be like, I'm, I'm at hockey practice. I don't want to do that. So it's just like this fascinating thing about how life never really syncs up. It's like there's three timelines. And, right. Well, I, I will do I'll do one other Westworld comparison just because I said I wouldn't, which is just to say that it's wonderful that we have both things. And I always want high and low entertainment. But. One thing that I particularly appreciate about Manchester by the Sea right now is that it, it's tough. You know, and, and by tough, I mean, I don't mean it's tough to figure out the timelines. It's not tough like a Rubik's Cube or a puzzle. It's sort of tough like life is, and you yeah. have to grapple with it. Yeah. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not just that the characters don't get the catharsis. We don't either. And we, you walk out of that movie feeling a little bit bruised, but you sort of, it's okay because it has to be okay. Yeah. And, and it, it puts you in a place that is, a little uncomfortable and a little rare for movies to get you to, and I think that's that's worth noting. I definitely had one of those beers where you drink a beer and you're like, I really needed that. <laughs> <laughs> where, you, where you need to, you need to have the first beer before you're willing to like understand the first to, to accept the taste of the second beer. Like I just need this beer, get through this beer so I can have my my first beer, which is actually my second. right. This beer is just to calm my nerves. The second beer is for beer. <laughs> Um, all right, uh, Andy, we should actually wrap it up, um, but we will be taking off Thursday, which is obviously Thanksgiving. So we just want to wish all of our listeners a really happy Thanksgiving, and then we'll be back the following Monday to discuss Westworld and everything else. Yeah, and do you think maybe in, in lieu of a show uh, this week, maybe we'll throw some tracks up on a Spotify playlist that you can find by searching uh, my name or Chris Ryan 77 on Spotify, we'll hopefully throw some just throw some songs out that we've been digging that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about. I'll so tweet it. I'll tweet it out, out for you. Yeah, because I'm off Twitter, man, and it feels great. Okay, I'm sitting here just eating hot macadamia nuts <laughs> in the cold. I'll talk to you soon, man. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Bransky. Thanks again to Sonos for sponsoring the pod today. Sonos is the smart speaker system that strains all your favorite music to any room or every room. You control your music with one simple app, and you fill your home with pure, immersive sound. One simple app brings together all your favorite music services and lets you control everything from songs to volume to rooms. You play a different song in living room, bedroom, even the bathroom, or the same track in every room. Add your existing music services or discover something new. Check out Sonos today. Thanks again to Original Grain. There are a lot of watch brands out there, but none that make as much of an impact as Original Grain. Original Grain designs stunning watches made from wood and steel. These are the most unique watches I have ever seen. So go to OriginalGrain.com slash the watch, and they will give you 15% off your entire purchase. OriginalGrain.com slash the watch.